Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. All right, welcome everybody. It is Saturday and it's time for another What A Week episode. I'm Luke, I'm your host, and it's time to go through all the articles that you probably missed throughout the week. Because we find the fun stuff that's not getting pumped to you in the mainstream media sources. I got a good update for you. I got all my new sound equipment in. I'm now actually using a professional microphone and a mixer. I'm not just using a USB condenser microphone that I'm plugging into my laptop. I'm still learning how to use all this. I am not a sound engineer. So hopefully very soon the sound will be much, much better. Um, Hopefully in this episode it is already, but I will learn to use this better as I go along. So the sound and the show itself should be getting better and better all the time. I'm about uh, three months into this this uh, program now, and you know, in the short amount of time, I am on my 53rd episode. So most podcasts put out one episode a week, so I have put out a year's worth of content in the last couple months, and I'm still just getting rolling. I got a ton more topics to go over. I mean, literally an endless amount of topics because I'm finding new stuff all the time. So thank you guys who have been with me from the start. I hope you're enjoying the show. If not, I don't know why you're still listening, and it's just going to keep getting better. And on the the best side of this, I can now start doing interviews. I have a really exciting interview lined up for next Wednesday. You guys won't hear it for the fall until the following week after that, obviously, because I'll have to do all the editing and everything. But I got a bunch of people lined up, and we will be talking to some pretty interesting people here in the near future. So let's get into this week's news articles. So first off, this comes from interestingengineering.com. There's a company, a Swiss company, it's a startup called Energy Vault, and they are creating two massive gravity batteries. They have one in the U.S. and Texas and one over in China. And what these things are, it's actually a really interesting idea, is it's a pulley system that uses weight, and as the weight drops, it charges a generator and creates electricity seems like a pretty uh simplistic thing to do right kind of kind of wonder why we haven't done this before but the way that they're using this and the way that this is creating energy because you know just like any sort of perpetual energy creation device you have to have something powering it which makes perpetual energy very hard if not uh, impossible i don't think perpetual energy is impossible but that's kind of what we say with uh, how our understanding of physics works but what they are planning on doing with this is they're using radioactive material and waste and waste from a lot of other sources including coal and ash and soil and mining tailings incinerated city waste stuff that normally we don't really have anything to do with so they're using that and they're creating bricks out of it these huge giant like three megaton bricks and they are creating these buildings that are i think 400 feet tall 400 to 450 feet tall and they hook them up to solar grids and to wind turbine grids And so when those wind turbines produce electricity, they use that to pull up these big old bricks to the top of these giant buildings that they're creating. And then when we need excess electricity, they let that thing drop. And as it drops, it pulls on the pulley system and it makes excess electricity so that we can use that and harness that as well. And then when it's done charging its own generator, it gets pulled back up by the electrical grid that's already in place, like the solar power or the 
the wind turbines or the water turbines or whatever it is that they hook it up to. So it's a really, really interesting idea. I think it's super cool. They're just test running it. They got a long ways to go at this point, but they are building their first two buildings. Like I said, one in Texas and one over in China. So a lot of hope in there and hopefully it uh, plays out in the right direction. You know, I've said this before, there's been lots and lots of cases of people coming up with very clever and very, um, significant ways to create very cheap if not free electricity and a lot of times it kind of let's just say goes missing you know people that uh, make a lot of money off energy don't necessarily want you getting it for free so hopefully this one will stay on the books and stay in the public eye and be able to grow from here you know it's not creating completely free electricity it's just a way to store some extra electricity when we need that backup so I don't think this one will get shunned as much as as much as other ones, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. And then next up, this one is pretty interesting. This comes from Artnet.com. A group of Polish Mediterranean archaeologists from the Center of Mediterranean Archaeology in Poland have been exploring houses dating back to the later Fungi period. Or Fungi period? I think it's Fungi period. And that was the 16th century to the 19th century. And they stumbled across a room with some pretty unique paintings in them. So they had paintings which depicted God, Christ, the mother of God, and Nubian ruler and the archangel Michael. So they're thinking that this Nubian ruler was probably King David. And they think that these paintings were probably meant as um, a way to ask God's protection because apparently this area of Dongola was a very important trade route along the Nile and it flourished for hundreds of years while there was peaceful relations between the Muslims of Egypt and the Christians of Nubia. Well, it looks like those relations were kind of falling apart and so they created these paintings in a way to ask God's protection and represent God and the Archangel Michael's protections of their King David on the wall and kind of ask for, um, you know, God's saving grace when everything was falling apart. But it looks like it didn't exactly work out for him because David's reign marked the beginning of the end for the kingdom and his actions led to the city being sacked by the Malmuk Sultanate in 1276. So unfortunately, it didn't really go the way that they planned, but it's a really unique painting um, sounds like they haven't really found something quite like this before, especially in that area. So you can go onto my site at stolenreality.com. Of course, I'll have all of these articles linked up. And you can come on here to artnet.com and check out these really cool paintings that they found. You know, what a cool thing to be just looking through old houses and finding these historical pieces kind of hidden away. They actually found it by stumbling into a small opening that when they went through turned into this giant chamber behind the house. You know, there's another story that happened a little while ago, and I can't remember exactly where this happened, but I'll probably do a, a episode on this at some point in time. But I remember there was a, a man and his son, and they were doing renovations in his home, but their home was backed up to a hillside, and they knocked down the back wall to try to expand their house, and they found a huge underground ancient like burial cave system right under, like attached to the back of their house. So you never know what you're going to find when you live in areas of the world that have such a rich historical history. So super cool. You should come in and check out these paintings on my site. 
And speaking of old ancient stuff, this comes from goodnewsnetwork.org. Long before trees overtook the land, our planet was covered by giant mushrooms. So apparently they find these giant uh, fossilized remnants of what look like tree trunks all over the world. And they say that they're like 45 million years old and they find them all over the place. Well, some people have theorized that these are actually from giant mushrooms. And they say still to this day, most uh, archaeologists and most academics don't believe that. But when they look at them and when they're doing more research on these things, they're finding that they definitely are some sort of fungus. They're made up of narrow tube-like structures that are 20 to 50 microns in diameter, so pretty small, that weave around one another. And the filaments that are even thinner and have an inner perforated walls, a trait that's only found in red algae and fungus. So it was either uh, some sort of giant algae or more likely from what they're finding, they were giant mushrooms that were all over the place. And he says that it's really kind of frustrating because a six meter fungus doesn't make any sense, but the fossil's there and no matter what argument you put put forth, people still say that it's crazy and still won't really accept it. But it looks like a long time ago, our world was much more, you know, avatar-like and that there was these giant mushrooms all over the place. They were kind of here before us. You know, there's a lot of uh, evidence about the symbiotic relationship that we've had with mushrooms throughout our development and how intelligent, really, for lack of a better word, mushrooms are and that they're this big, like, intertwined neural network. And it sounds like they were on the world in a in a much larger phase a long, long time ago. I can't wait until we figure out time travel and we can actually go back and check these things out. There was actually a really interesting article that I was going to do um, today about the theoretical possibilities of time travel and what they've figured out about it and the fact that, you know, we pretty much can figure out time travel mathematically and there's ways to do it uh, we just haven't really quite gotten there yet but the article was so lengthy and in-depth that I'm probably going to turn that into its own episode about time travel at some point so I'm not just going to try to butcher that article but the world was obviously quite a different place back in the day and it sounds like it may have been uh, filled with some fungi <laughs> another dad joke all right moving on this next one kind of blew my mind, and I think it uh, has been blowing a lot of people's minds from the sounds of it. It comes from iflscience.com. Apparently, there was a study done back in 2014, and it turns out we can't feel wetness. And it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it, so give me a second here. But they did studies on a bunch of insects, and they found out that they have humidity receptors or hygroreceptors that allow them to have humidity detection and be able to sense wetness, essentially. Well, we don't have those. What we do instead is we have a mixture of temperature sensors and temperature control and of texture sensors. And so those two things together is where we get this idea of what wetness feels like. And it actually explains a lot because how many times have you like sat down on something cold all of a sudden and you're like, oh my God, I just sat in something wet. And you stand up and you think that it was wet and then you feel your butt and it wasn't wet. I've done that 10,000 times to put your hand on something that was cold and think that it got wet. Well, that's because we don't actually know what wet feels like all we know is that a temperature change mixed with a very specific texture is wetness so sometimes our minds can be tricked into that feeling so i thought that was super interesting and i guess uh, a lot of other people around the world are pretty freaked out about it because there's a bunch of tweets and stuff they reference
reference on here of people freaking out as well. It's really amazing how we kind of build our world by these amalgamation of senses and inputs that we have and then create this picture of it. But it's not necessarily a true picture of the world. It's just how our minds can interpret it and how we see that picture of it. So when you hear something like this, like we don't actually know what wetness is, it kind of kind of blows your mind. And speaking of kind of seeing the world by your own eyes, this next one comes from scientificamerican.com. People differ widely in their understanding of even a simple concept such as the word penguin. So this article is pretty interesting and it goes on to just kind of tell about how when we think of a very specific object, like we say a penguin, you have a picture in your head of what a penguin is, but it is not the same as a picture of everybody else because we don't think about things necessarily as these simplistic um, objects. We actually think of them as like these abstracts. So in your mind, you say, well, a penguin is kind of this thing that's almost kind of like um, a stork, but it goes in the water, but it's kind of fat and it has this black and white like tuxedo to it. So you have all these little descriptors that you build the idea of a penguin out of. Well, when it comes to another person, their descriptors are going to be slightly different and somebody else's are going to be slightly different, slightly different. But those little tiny differences actually make up a, a big dramatic change in the long run. So the University of California, Berkeley did some studies on people with these very simplistic ideas and kind of had them break down how they really understood stuff. And they said, we think that we can explain a lot of disagreements people have. It's an approach to understanding why people talk past each other. And they said that you can really see the um, difference in people's understandings of the world because we're all building the perception of the world in our own brains. One of the psychologists, Celeste Kidd, who was one of the senior authors of the study, said, people have wondered for a long time how to put a number on how much overlap there is, and it's really low. It blows my mind. So the amount of things in your perception of something that overlap with somebody else's exact same perception is actually pretty small. Most of the things that you have in your mind that make up what your idea of, say, a penguin is, is going to be drastically different than everybody around you. So when you take that into context of how you describe something to somebody or just a very simple conversation on how many objects and and uh, different ideas you throw into your sentence structure, by the end of your sentence, it could be a completely different thing in somebody else's mind. You know, I say, I'm going to get in my car and go to the store to buy some groceries. Well, car, store, and groceries are built up of all these different ideas in my head and in your head they're going to be so dramatically different that it's very easy for us to kind of get off track with each other. So this is a really interesting article and if you want to come through and read it, it talks about all their research and it goes much deeper obviously into that whole idea and what that really means in our minds. But something I've never really, uh, well I mean I guess I've kind of thought about that before but I haven't like gotten that deep into it. That Yeah, like every single object in space and time. You know, I told you guys that I got a new microphone. Well, to me, it's sitting right in front of me. I understand what that is. You guys have no idea what it looks like, what it feels like or anything. So you're, you're building this world in your mind the whole time. And we all kind of live in our own separate worlds. So it kind of uh, gives you a little more empathy and lets you be a little more uh, lenient when you're talking to somebody and they're not on the same page with you because they might not just be ignoring you. They might just have a completely different mindset of where you're at at that time. 
And then getting out of our brains and heading up into space, this comes from foxnews.com. Astronomers discover 25 new repeating radio bursts. So I know for a long time that was like the big thing that SETI, the search for um, extraterrestrial intelligence, was looking for. And the thing that we would look for to look for life out in the universe is if we got repeating signals from one direction then we would be like, oh, well, something's probably sending those signals out. Well, we found them over time, and we still don't understand what exactly those things are. So they have just found 25 new sources of repeating fast radio bursts, which are explosions from the sky far beyond the Milky Way, which doubles the number of confirmed sources. So they just, you know, are obviously getting much better at detecting these things. They say, you know, obviously we still don't know where these come from. There's a lot of theories. The one that I've heard the most is they're um, like rotating and pulsating stars. They think in this article that it might have something to do with the after effects of after a star dies off. I'm going to go ahead and say each one of these are probably civilizations sending us out signals, and we're just not saying that right now. But that's just wishful thinking. But it is cool that we're getting to the point where we can pick these things up obviously much faster and more um, frequently if we just doubled the number of them pretty much overnight comparatively to what we have found in the past. So that uh, leads in a lot of hope for not just the search for extraterrestrial life, which is what I'm more interested in, (laughs) but just for the understanding of the cosmos in general. And speaking of extraterrestrial life which I keep slurring that word. I'm sorry, I swear to God I'm not drunk. I don't drink. <laughs> but uh, I'm just exhausted. It's the middle of the night on Friday. i got to be up at 6 in the morning and go coach a Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament. But anyway, we're going to get through this, guys. Apologize for my slur. And I told you I got this beautiful new sound system, and I probably sound like a, a slob, but that's okay. We're going to make it through. So this one comes from BigThink.com. Why aliens are more likely to be AI. So this whole article um, just kind of breaks down the ideas of why extraterrestrial life that would come and visit us would be much more likely to be AI. And I think that's kind of, when you think about it, is kind of um, obvious why that would happen. Because for one, a biological system traversing the universe, unless we can get into the idea of wormholes, which there was an interesting article about that I'm not going to get into because they're a little too in-depth as well. But um, unless we can jump from space to space across space-time, if we actually have to traverse long distances, that would be very hard for any biological being to do. But to be able to create an AI and either put our consciousness into it or just give it enough sentience to be able to perform tasks on its own would be a much more reasonable thing to do. So when you actually like sit down and think about it critically, you're like, okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. It's just not something that we really think about. We think about aliens and we think about these little green men walking around, but there's a much higher chance that if we do get visited by something or if we are getting visited by something, then they're probably... AI. I mean, look at the AI that we've created just in the last little while. Imagine something that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years more advanced than us, what kind of artificial intelligence that they would have. At that point, is it even artificial intelligence? You know, it's just uh, reproduced sentient intelligence, really. And they're saying in this article that if we were to go out onto these planets all over the the universe, there's probably a lot more of them that are populated by artificial intelligence rather than at actual natural organic intelligence out there. Because if a civilization like us wanted to colonize space, we would probably send them out first. So there might be 
hundred planets colonized by an artificial intelligence from some culture out there, and then the amount of planets that that culture and themselves has actually reached might be much, much smaller than that. So just a pretty interesting thing to kind of ponder, and you can read this article on BigThink.com. Um, they get into it a little bit more. That's pretty much sums it up, though. But I thought that was a pretty cool uh, pretty cool thought experiment to, to put your mind down for a little bit. And then this one is also kind of about intelligence. Not artificial, but our intelligence. This comes from BigThink.com. The sapient paradox. With brains like ours, why did prehistoric humans wait millennia to start civilization? So if our timeline of human development is correct, then we developed our modern human intelligence around 60,000 years ago. But civilization didn't develop until about 10,000 years ago. So what happened in that 50,000-year gap? 50,000 years, that's a very long time, that we just kind of sat around and goofed off in caves. So that is called the sapient paradox. And there's a lot of different um, ideas about it. We don't really know for sure. But this article goes over some of the more um, common ideas. The first one's called the preconceptions of history. And that's just that we just haven't really given enough credit to how their civilizations worked, that they were developing more. And we think of them as these cave dwellers who were like beating rocks against each other and hitting each other with clubs. But maybe they did have a much more structured social hierarchy and were much more, um, quote unquote, modernized than we give them credit for. So that would be the first idea of things is that we just don't really know what we're talking about when it comes to them. The second one on here is the dormant mechanisms. And that's that up until we did develop things like agriculture, we didn't really have the um, need for that. And we didn't have the ability to do that because people would die off. They explain it really well in here that before agriculture, it was really difficult for hunter-gatherers to preserve any sort of knowledge. So if you're out you know, fighting saber-toothed tigers and looking for berries, you might be a really good hunter and you might be able to pass that on to your children, but if you get killed, that's not going to get passed on. And um, the man who proposed this idea uses the analogy of primates. He says that when a skilled hunter in a group of baboons dies, his hunting techniques are not passed down after his death. So as a result, the troop, and by extension the whole species, doesn't expand. So it might just be the fact that times were so rough back then that people were dying off quicker than they could spread their knowledge and they weren't able to kind of grow their civilization as quickly as we can now because we're much safer now that agriculture has been developed and we live in bigger groups together and we don't have to go out foraging the whole time. So that is one possibility. Also, there's the gossip trap. I like the name of that, but the gossip trap is actually really interesting. And I'm going to look more into this and and maybe do a, a bit of soda or something about this at some point. But there's an essay written about this idea that and apparently there's a lot of evidence for this as well, that in ancient hunter-gatherer um, and prehistoric developments and, and cultures, the people who were out there and doing the, the cave art and doing the more beneficial work for their little tribes and societies and were the strongest and would kind of dedicate themselves to making it better were actually ridiculed and made fun of relentlessly by the rest of their troop. Kind of sound familiar, huh? We do this today a lot, where when somebody starts getting healthy or going to the gym or reading a 
lot of books, especially with younger people, what happens? Oh, you think you're smart or you're big brain? And they kind of get picked on for trying to better themselves. And apparently this has been going on for a very, very long time since the prehistoric days. And he says that because of that, we might have... Um, kind of shunned that part of society away for so long that we weren't able to develop because of it. And he also goes on to talk about how we're kind of doing that again with social media and how we are now kind of falling back into this quote-unquote gossip trap and we might not be growing as rapidly as a civilization as we could be because we shun each other for making advancements and everything's so messed up which you know I think we're I think that one's pretty obvious that is definitely happening now but it's just kind of interesting that that's been happening since the beginning of time I really want to know what psychological factor plays into that and why it is that humans tend to group together and when somebody tries to achieve something higher than what that group is at they ridicule them as opposed to try to follow them Um, you know not always of course you know you see a lot of very strong leaders and stuff lead groups of people but seems to be something that has happened throughout history and is still happening to this day so it's pretty interesting he calls it the gossip trap and that's the ones that they mentioned in this article And then, of course, we have my idea where our whole timeline of human history is messed up and there was an advanced civilization thousands of years ago that has been kind of wiped off um, because of cataclysmic events. And then we could go down the road even of maybe our genes were manipulated 13,000 years ago and that's why we had agriculture and stuff pop up so rapidly. But we're not going to go down that too much right now because uh, I'll tie that into a different episode. But read this Big Think article. It is pretty interesting and I will get more into that gossip trap at some point. I just learned about it 20 minutes ago when I read this article so I don't know too much about it but it does sound pretty interesting and I'll, I'll, um, I put it on my list to do a bit of soda about it. And then next up, speaking about being smart and uh, consciousness, scientists discovered never before seen brave, never before seen, wow, I'm tired, brainwave patterns after reading octopuses' minds. This comes from livescience.com. So by surgically attaching electrodes to octopi, or octopuses, I still don't know which one of those is correct, researchers have been able to peer inside the cephalopods' minds for the very first time. So we haven't really been able to brain scan octopus before because they're so smart and because their arms can reach to every place of their body. They usually just tear the things off of their heads before we get a chance to do it. So they actually took some of them that are in captivity and they hooked up little electrodes and they surgically implanted them into their brains so that they could read their brainwave patterns. So they saw that Some of the activity patterns have some similarities to activity patterns observed in mammalian hippocampus, so in our brains, and also in the memory center. But they also observed a unique pattern, two hertz of activity, that were never reported in other animals. So there's something going on in the octopi brain that we've never seen before, which is super cool. Um, I don't think they quite know what that means yet. You know, I've, I've played around with binaural beats and brain entrainment and um, different states of consciousness and things like that. And I do know that when we get down to like the two hertz brainwave activity, that's when you're hitting like your deeper sleep and, and uh, you know, really kind of out of consciousness realm. So the fact that they're registering their consciousness in those two hertz activity ranges is pretty interesting. So I, I'm really excited to see what they come up with from that and uh, what kind of 
responses they find that come from that brainwave activity in the octopi. So we will see where they go with that one, but you can come on here to LiveScience.com and read through their study. And then next up, jumping into a completely different direction here, this comes from CVSNews.com. It's going to hit consumers hard. Those with higher credit scores may pay higher mortgage fees. So beginning May 1st, some people with higher credit scores may actually end up paying a higher fee while those with lower scores will pay less. So this has been all over the news, so I'd be pretty uh, shocked if you haven't heard about this yet. But if you haven't, here it is. The Federal Housing Finance Agency is recalibrating the fee structure for loan level price adjustment, or LLPA, by lowering fees for some borrowers who are hiking those up for others. So it goes on to explain the full new um, pay structure here and how it's all going to work, but I'm not going to get into all the numbers. But one little example here is for a homeowner with a $500,000 purchase price who puts down a minimum down payment, a person with a 660 score will get a rate of about 6.25, where a buyer with 740 score will will pay 6.5. So they say that they're not penalizing people for having high credit scores, and they're not rewarding people for having low credit scores, and that you shouldn't think about it that way, but it's kind of hard not to think about it that way. They say that it also, the changes will also make it more expensive for borrowers to refinance and pull equity out of their homes to pay off consumer debt. They are quoted as saying, the higher credit score borrowers are not being charged more so that the lower credit score borrowers can pay less. Some updated fees are higher and some are lower in different amounts. They do not represent pure decreases for high-risk borrowers or pure increases for low-risk borrowers. And the reason why I believe they're making that statement is because um, a lot of more conservative news coverage of this is talking about how this is a a step towards the idea of um, socialism and equity. Um, and you can think what you want about that, but they're obviously coming out and saying that's not what we're trying to do here. We're not lowering rates for some so that we can, you know, we're not raising rates for some of this so that we can lower rates for others and just kind of meet it in the middle. But again, looking at all these numbers, it's kind of hard to... to <laughs> to think that's not kind of what's going on here. But you can come through on the CBS News article and they have a link to the entire structure and you can read through the whole new um, designation of how everything's going to work. But just know if you've been working your ass off to have a good credit score, um, you know, it's now going to kind of hurt you in the long run a little bit, it looks like, unfortunately. I have my own opinions about credit scores in the first place, but uh, things are changing pretty rapidly in this world. We're all going to be moving to a social credit score system here within the next six years anyway, so I don't think <laughs> I don't think any of that's going to matter too much. And then on a little uh, lighter side of the news, this one's pretty interesting. It comes from iflscience.com. People are just now learning how the I am not a robot CAPTCHA test actually works. So you know when you go online and you try to go into a website or sign up for something or whatever and you have to click the I am not a robot little box? Well, that thing's called a CAPTCHA, and it stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart, which I never knew that. It's a pretty uh, ridiculously long name. Glad that they uh, turned it into an acronym. But anyway, you would think that how I've always thought about it is you go and you click that. For some reason, AI systems and robots can't do that. So it, it 
tells them who's real and who's not, but that's not actually how it works. How it works is it actually looks at what you did right before you clicked on that I am not a robot box. So by clicking on that box, you're giving it permission to look at your past, I don't know exactly how long, a minute or a couple minutes or whatever of your history of your mouse movement and of your computer. And so they say that like, even if you try to move in a straight line from one side of your computer over to that capture box with your mouse, human hands aren't that steady. So it's not going to move in a perfectly straight line. There's going to be these little tiny discrepancies and, and kind of zigzag movements all over the place as we get there. So when it sees that, it says, okay, you're probably a human. And it can also look back even a little bit farther and see right before you click that box, oh, they went and checked out a song and then they watched a YouTube video and then they searched on the Wish app to buy something. Well, that's probably a human. That probably wasn't an AI bot reaching out. So it actually judges um, your humanity on your past couple minutes of, of actual mouse movement on your computer and of your browsing history. So you're giving it permission to do that. So that kind of... Uh, was surprising to me. I guess I never really thought about how those things work, but now you know. You give them permission to look at your past history for the last couple seconds or, or minutes every time you click one of those things. So make sure you're not looking at any of them there uh, nudie sites before you click on one next time. Or maybe do. Maybe that would make you seem more human. And then next up, speaking of being more human, this comes from foxnews.com. Caffeine bear guzzles nearly 70 cans of soda. Stops short when it tries one particular kind. I would imagine they called him Caffeine Bear because of that movie Cocaine Bear that came out a little while ago. But there was a woman who owned a food truck up in Canada, and she had a whole bunch of uh, products in one of her vehicles. Well, this bear came out. She woke up to her dog barking at 3 in the morning, and she came out and saw this bear rummaging through her car and going and eating, or actually drinking, I don't know what you want to call it, lapping up all of her soda cans. And it drank 69 cans of soda. She tried to stop it. She tried yelling at it. She tried to scare it off. She said she even tried to bargain with it and say that, uh, she said she tried to psych it out by yelling at him and telling her, telling the bear that she was a hunter. And she said he just wouldn't do anything about it. So she just kind of had to stand by and watch as he devoured her car. But it drank 69 cans of soda, but the ones it wouldn't touch, it didn't drink any diet soda. So what does that tell you about drinking diet soda? <laughs> you know, there's uh, you think that diet soda is better for you because it has the word diet in it, but it is it is horrible for you. Maybe I'll do a, a bit of soda about aspartame sometimes. You know, my fifth grade teacher was a beautiful woman. I had a crush on her in, in fifth grade. You know, I was... <laughs> Obviously just a wee lad, but she was really pretty. And she would drink a Diet Coke, like six Diet Cokes a day. She'd have like two in the morning, two at lunch, two. Like by the time the school day was over, she drank so many Diet Cokes. And I remember in um, eighth grade, I went back to visit her and just to say goodbye before I went off into high school. And she was having some health problems. Um, you know, she I didn't want to talk too bad about her or anything because... Uh, can't imagine she's listening to this but just in case but it was very obvious that she wasn't doing too well and she was very young and stuff and the only thing I can attribute that to is the amount of diet coke that she drank you know she had liver spots at her face at probably at the age of 27 or whatever she was at the time um, and there's a lot of studies about how bad it is for your gut bacteria and your overall body but apparently this bear already knew that because he went in and drank all the the sodas that had natural sugar in them and didn't touch any of the diet soda 
So if there's if there's somebody you can trust for your dietary advice, I would say it's a bear. I mean, these these motherfuckers can eat and then eat nothing else because they eat so good that they can sleep through a winter. You think they'd know what they're doing. So uh, maybe lay off the diet soda if you're big on that. And then next up, almost done, guys. This one comes from interestingengineering.com. We have finally created flying cars. I actually think that I saw this a couple years ago, but um, there's an article about it now, so I don't know if they're just now releasing them to the public or for whatever reason this uh, news article picked up on it now. But I'm pretty sure I saw a video of this thing a couple years ago. But anyway, there is a Swedish company called Jetson, like meet the Jetsons, you know what I'm saying? And they just released its first flying car, the Jetson 1. For, so it sells for about $98,000 with only a down payment of $8,000. So that actually ain't that bad, right? I mean, fuck, like trucks nowadays are going for that. But you can get a flying car and it is completely electric and it actually works. You know, you can see pictures and videos of it on this site, but it's a little like single cab i don't even know if you could call it a car it's more like a flying motorcycle but it's built with the roll cage from like a formula one car from uh from nascar and so they're built very safe and they have little drone propellers they have four sets of them all around it so it's actually using these little propellers it's not like you know anti-gravity or rocket ship or anything like that they don't say in this article how high up they can go but they say that they go about 60, where did it say that? 63 miles per hour, and they fly for about 20 minutes. So you got around a 20-mile range, so not super far. Um, and the company says that it's not so much about using it to, like, you know, go across the sky and fly from Florida to, to California like you do in a normal aircraft. It's much more so about giving everybody the experience of flight and being able to do it. So I don't think they go super high off the ground. I think it's more just kind of a uh, play thing at this point. And I can't uh, tell you any legality about you taking it to work. I don't know if they've even crossed those lines yet. But the vehicle is fully electric and it also is built for just about anybody to fly. So it has a GPS built into it, and it's designed to meet FAA requirements for an ultralight vehicle, meaning it could be flown without a pilot's license in the U.S. So they're bringing the joy of flight to everybody. It has two joysticks in it, one to control your up and down, and one to control your forward, back, left, and right. So it seems pretty simple. They say anybody can learn to fly it in just a couple minutes, pretty much, because it almost flies itself. So if you guys out there want to pool your money together and buy me one of these things, I will do a live review of it at any point in time. But it looks like we're not too far off to being able to avoid traffic and just go right over the top of it. Of course, once everybody gets one of these, then we just got to have a new set of traffic. You know, the best uh, representation of, of that I've ever seen is if you've ever seen the movie The Fifth Element with Bruce Willis. You know, it takes place in the future. Well, they all have flying cars, but they all, they're in traffic jams. So it's like... Um, it'd be like on the ground, you know, you have your streets and then it's like, okay, at 20 feet in the air, everybody goes only north and at 24 feet in the air, that's where people go northeast and this and this and this. So each like section, it looks like is they're pretty much streets in the air. So everything's backed up even in the air in that movie. So it was a really good representation of what will probably happen one day once everybody has the ability to have these things. Because I'm sure when people had the first cars, they were just booking it around everybody with horses and it felt like freedom. And now you're getting stuck in traffic jams and you might as well have been on a horse. So how long does it take of having flying cars where it's more of a hindrance than, than this uh, great new freedom technology that gets you places faster? 
But either way, I will try one out. You guys hook me up with one. We'll do it live on the show. And then last up, this comes from Fortune.com. The owner of a giant ranch is auctioning off his 2,000 white rhinos after he failed to legalize selling horns. So when I read that, I was like, wow, this guy sounds like a piece of crap. But it's actually the exact opposite. So there's this guy who owns this um, giant ranch of 2,000 endangered rhinos, which he calls the Platinum Rhino Project. And it's about 96 miles southwest of Johannesburg in South Africa. And this man is actually a pretty good person. So this is like an eighth of the world's remaining rhinos population lives on this ranch. And the reason why he did this is to breed them to grow the population back. And he has been fighting tooth and nail to get them to legalize being able to sell rhino horns because in Asian markets, and I'm sure all over the world, rhino horns are used for medicines and aphrodisiacs and all sorts of fertility boosters and stuff like that. So there is a market for it. Well, since it's not legal for people to take rhino horns, they go out and they kill the rhinoceroses and rhinoceri, rhinoceros, they go out and kill these poor animals and they cut their horns off and they sell them on the black market. But the thing about their horns is they grow back. So if we could ethically, you know, essentially farm them like we do with every other animal, um, we wouldn't have to kill them. And they use them for defending themselves in the wild. So if you have them in big ranches like this and you're able to cut their horns off but then provide for them so they don't have to fend for their lives, you're not really hurting them. So he was really pushing for this and it just wasn't working out. It was just falling through. They weren't they weren't doing it for him, probably because people, you know, who make these decisions, I would assume, are making too much money in the black market with it because lobbying is where everything comes from. But unfortunately, he just couldn't do it any longer. So he's trying to auction off and sell this whole ranch, and he's hoping somebody will come over and buy it and take over it and continue this work that he's doing. They say that if they can't get somebody to come in and buy it, Unfortunately, they're probably going to have to separate this group of rhinos and sell them off individually um, or release some or put them down or whatever they're going to have to do. And that's going to take out a giant herd of the breeding population of these rhinos because they are kind of single-handedly responsible for helping these things recoup right now because they have a breeding population that makes up like one-eighth of the world's white rhinos. So if you guys don't want to throw money at me for a um, flying car, maybe and you happen to be a, a millionaire, <laughs> maybe go buy this ranch and, and help out these rhinos because that, that's really shitty that this is happening. But you can read more about it and this guy on this fortune.com article that I will have linked on my website. All right, guys, that's about all I got for you today. Um, I, I need to get some sleep. It's like one in the morning and I got to be up in a couple hours for this tournament. But I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Hope you heard some interesting things that you might not have gotten somewhere else. And I hope this one sounded a little bit better. We'll see. I haven't done any audio editing, obviously, yet. And I literally just got this uh, sound software about two hours ago. So I'm just playing around with it. If it doesn't sound the best, I apologize. By my next episode, it should be sounding much, much better. Anyway, hope you guys are having a great start to your weekend. Hope you had an awesome week and be safe out there. And I'll be back on Monday for the Mindset Mondays. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. Mm-hmm.